Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee. Joining us today is Dr. Matthew Mawinney from Florida State University. His new book, Form and Feeling in Japanese Literati Culture, was recently published through Pelgrave Macmillan. In this book, Matthew looks into poetic writings of four Japanese poets and how they transformed the Japanese literati tradition by creating new poetic forms of irony and lyricism. So welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jingyi, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. It's uh, very exciting to finally be able to talk about this book with you. Um, So can you tell us a bit about yourself first? Uh, What do you research and teach about? Yeah, um, so I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Modern Languages and Linguistics at Florida State University, um, where I I teach courses in Japanese language, literature, and culture. Um, I guess I have a lot of different interests um, that in the past five years, I haven't really been teaching for that long. Um, They've taken form in courses that span the entire literary tradition. Um, what's nice about being the only faculty member that works on Japanese literature is that I get to teach it all. Um, I teach pre-modern, modern, and contemporary literature surveys, um, as well as courses with more specific themes, such as, you know, what came before haiku, uh, war and representation, um, the East Asian imagination, um, life writing in Japan, and more recently, uh, a course called Touched by Japanese Cinema, uh, which informs my current um, project on sympathy and empathy uh, between text and reader, um, or in the case of cinema, between film and viewer. Um, I think my research interests are pretty broad, but um, everything I've written so far is, seems, it seems to touch on these areas, um, lyric poetry and theory, narrative, narratology, uh, romanticism, uh, imagination, subjectivity, and translation. 
Sounds great. That's a pretty good variety of topics. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, how did you、uh, begin to work on Japanese poetry? And I guess how did you become interested in this、uh, particular topic of literary culture? Yeah.、Um, so, I mean, it's it's it's. I guess it's a long story. <laughs>、um, when I was young, I, I really enjoyed reading and writing poetry.、Um, I grew up in San Francisco,、um, and for those who've been there, you know that it's a city filled with creative people and creative energy, and、um, home to many poets、um, even today.、Um, one of San Francisco's most amazing independent bookstores,、uh, Green Apple Books, was just blocks away from my childhood home, and they had a huge.、Um, Poetry collection, and and you know I, I went there as a kid, and and I still go there now whenever I have the chance.、Um, but I didn't really get serious about poetry until my college years at、um, UC Santa Barbara. I double majored in Chinese and、um, Japanese studies, and so I had the opportunity to study with you know many scholars of Japanese and Chinese literature.、Um, but I. I have to say that I began to work on Japanese poetry after reading and falling in love with classical Chinese poetry, like from the Tang and Song dynasties.、Um, it was my exposure to Chinese poetry in courses with、um, Dr. Ron Egan that then got me wondering about poetry in Japan. I learned classical Japanese,、um, so Bungo and Kanbun, from. Edo literature scholars,、um, Dr. Haruko Iwasaki and Dr. Robert Backus.、Um, Dr. Backus was retired、um, <clears throat> when I was a student, so he had more time to train me outside of class.、Um, he was very generous with his time, and we spent hours reading and talking about haiku and kanji.、Um, kanji being、um, traditional Chinese poetry as practiced in Japan, what scholars today call sinetic. Poetry or Sinaitic verse, so you know this is kind of a long, you know, roundabout way of saying that I started with, you know, I've always liked poetry, but I started getting into Chinese poetry, and then I was studying Japanese at the same time, and I thought, oh, you know, let's look at Japanese poetry, and and so I that sort of what drew me to, and also the people that were teaching me, and and I kind of just fell in love with what they were reading.、Um, going back to Ron Egan. Um, as you as you may know, he he wrote this wonderful book on a Song Dynasty literatus named Su Shi, and I've always loved that book. It was sort of an inspiration for me.、Um, you know, back in the day, we can write these really like long and what you know in depth、uh, single author works.、Um, just I don't know. It's a it's a, it's a genre that I hope comes back. <laughs> But、um, I'd say that it was his book on Su Shi that 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 got me thinking about literati culture in Japan. And so, when I was thinking about a way to, you know, use my Chinese and Japanese、um, reading skills, I thought, oh, literary culture would be a great way to do that.、Um, and there, you know, there are books on literary culture in China because、um, it's so central there, but there weren't that many on Japan. So it, it just seemed like a good project, and、um, I kind of went with it from there. Indeed. And、uh, by the way, do you write any poetry yourself? Um. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I started writing. You know, just really silly. You know, poems in English that rhymed, and、um, I think as early as I can remember, maybe in middle school or something. And then, 
you know, poetry has always stuck with me, but I, I didn't really think it would be something to pursue as a scholar until um, I, don't know, I saw what could be done with it. And um, I, when I one time when I started learning Japanese and Chinese and getting more serious about my studies um, in Japanese and Chinese literature, I thought, well, why don't I start composing haiku and, and, and composing Chinese poetry? And so I did. Um, I, I, I would never show anybody <laughs> those poems, but um, yes, uh, I have I have dabbled. Yes, I mean, I, I would say that what I like the most about um, working on this material is I, I, it gets me curious about literary criticism and just um, criticism on poetry and and you know poetic thought and poetic form and um, so it's for me it's more about how do we write about poetry now as opposed to me trying to like become a poet um, although maybe in the future that 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 um, is in the cards but right now I'm fine thinking about poetry <laughs> hope so yeah well, so in this book um, so you mentioned you you're focusing on the literary culture um, and this is a question that I struggle with in my own dissertation but who do you refer to by the term literati? Right. So anyway, the term literati, it's uh, well, or literatus um, in singular form. It's this convenient English word that we use to translate the Chinese term wenren, right? And these men of letters, these savants of the arts. Um, and then that term wenren in Japanese is bunjin. Um, and, you know, literatus or literati, these are people who, you know, because the term has this Chinese provenance, we think of um, these artists who composed Chinese poetry, who practiced in Chinese styles of painting. Um, and you know, for those who know more about this term, um, there are books on this. Like, so for example, Su Shi, right? This, this Song Dynasty literatus from in China that I mentioned earlier. You know, the the term originated. I mean, when you think of the uh, a traditional literatus. You think of someone like him, and this is someone who's more than just an artist. Someone who's a statesman, who's worked in you know in, in politics, um, and so with that context, it has just so many. I mean, the literatus dons so many hats, um, but the literatus that I'm talking about in Japan um, in the uh, 18th century is someone who's just emerged as this sort of independent artist that was also practicing in these um, Chinese forms or these forms from, you know, the Chinese tradition that were passed along centuries after centuries. Um, and this tradition, it didn't start in the 18th century in Japan, but it, it certainly reached its height. And it was at this moment where you have these painters, um, poets um, who were practicing in, in these Chinese forms um, that sort of emerged in, in, in full swing, so to speak. And, um, I wanted to sort of trace that development and uh, how it rose and then how it fell. Um, so in the book, I mean, I treat four figures that were sort of on the periphery of this tradition, this literary tradition. And once again, the literary tradition, you know, um, mostly engaging with Chinese forms, Chinese painting, Chinese calligraphy. Um, right. <laughs> but in Japan, you know, Japan being Japan, right? It will domesticate something. It'll make it its own. And so literary culture really sort of expanded and, and, and brought in other um, genres of painting 
and poetry, and I talk about those in my book, and those are haikai, haikai, um, you know, this unorthodox um, comic verse, and then um, haiga, right, and the, the painting associated with that poetic genre. Um, so the the kind of literati culture I'm interested in is that which emerged in Japan at this this sort of moment of incredible, you know, um, artistic creativity and where it's really not tied to politics so much it's it's about the pursuit of um what it means what it means to be an artist an independent artist indeed it's such a fascinating topic and also very difficult to define um as uh, many of the scholars before have uh, demonstrated now in your book you focus on four poets um two from early modern japan so to speak and two from modern how did you, um, or why did you choose to focus on these four? And why did you choose um, for your research period to be crossing early modern and modern? Mm. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I mean, just to sort of, I don't know, go back a little bit to, you know, the term literati or, or bunjin, rather, the Japanese term for that. Um, I mean, it is very, it is vague and it's hard to define. And, you know, there's an opacity to it that a, you know, cause some scholars to not want to use it at all. But at the same time, I mean, when you say bunjin in Japan, you, you refer to someone who is, you know, well-versed in multiple forms. And that is what has always been appealing to me about um, just the whole concept of being a literatus or a bunjin. And uh, those forms, you know, having a strong uh, grounding or foundation in, in the Chinese arts and Chinese philosophy, Chinese thought. Um, and so I wanted to, to look at um, four figures who weren't, I mean, they've been called Bunjin. They certainly engaged in, you know, in, in literati culture, but they weren't sort of like the first thing that came to mind, you know, when you think of uh, what is a Bunjin. And so I chose Yosa Busan, Emma Saiko, um, Masoka Shiki, and Natsume Soseki as sort of four eccentric bunjin who are sort of on the periphery of that cultural center. Um, although, you know, after they, you know, they're all sort of dead and gone, um, literary historians have called them bunjin um, because they engaged in these Chinese forms. But I mean, who know? I mean, when they were living, it's, it's, it's doubtful that they referred to themselves as bunjin, but they're, they're you know, in literary history, you know, we can sort of make these, these connections and through their works, we can kind of see that they're very interested in participating in this long history of, of um, what we call Bunjin culture, literati culture. I chose to focus on two from early modern and more specifically the late Edo period, which is um, the late 18th century to the uh, middle of the 19th century. And I chose two from the modern period who were contemporaries, Shiki and Soseki, because I was really interested in that, that historical um, moment that transitioned from early modern to modern that um, I would say just recently scholars have been um, drawing more attention to um, people like, you know, Jonathan Zwicker, um, Daniel Polk, Matthew Fraley, um, even Rob Tuck. And so it's just, it's in, there's a lacune um, in um, Japanese literary historiography. And so I felt, you know, it's a good, moment to to jump right in but as i as i mentioned earlier i wanted to 
make this book about sort of the rise and the fall. Um, not that this literary historical narrative needs to be the most important thing, and for me, it's not. It's I mean, it's the book is more about poetry and what is literati poet, what is poetry in um, literati culture, and how do how do writers engage with that tradition? But there is sort of there is that background historical narrative of when this culture um, reaches its height and when it does sort of you know um, get replaced or ha- has to compete with um, more modern forms of literary expression and. That's why I chose these four figures because the first two really sort of embody, and in, in, in an interesting way, sort of the, the the fruits of literary culture. And then Shiki and Sozeki are sort of at the tail end, wondering how do we sort of keep this alive um, despite the fact that everything is changing. Fascinating. And now that we're talking about poetry in this book, um, I guess for some background information, can you tell us about what um, lyricism was like in, I guess, or, uh, your book started from the mid-Edo period, the uh, mid-Tokugawa period, and uh, ended with the Meiji and Taisho period. So how did uh, lyricism change from, um, and I get this is a very broad question, <laughs> But how did lyricism change, transform from um, the mid Tokugawa period to the Taisho period? What forms, what genres of poetry were people practicing and who were practicing them? Yeah. No, this is a good question. And, and um, I mean, it, you know, it's one of these questions that um, it's also hard to answer because, you know, <laughs> what is Edo lyricism like? Well, in one word, you know, um, I mean, I would say, first of all, using the word lyric um, to talk about um, early modern anything or anything that's pre-modern um, is probably debatable just because um, very few people, very few, very few scholars do and, and want to use the term lyric. Um, I'm, I'm fine with it. Um, um, I like, I mean, I, I happen to like poetry and I think that this is a really good lyric poetry. And I think lyric or lyricism is a good way to describe um, the kinds of things that we see um, in the, um, especially with late Edo, with um, the emergence of what we might describe as, I don't know, the a heightened a heightened awareness of self, and I'm not the you know first person to say this, but um, and there there are Japanese scholars I cite in the in the introduction um, who have made this claim, and I'm sort of merely you know going with that and and seeing how what this looked like um, with say. Um, Yosobuson and, and Emma Seiko's poetry. And you know, with this heightened awareness of self, what, what does that mean then, right? Um, and I show in the book how you know, these poets, beginning with Buson and Seiko, they embraced um, an aesthetic attitude of strangeness um, in performances of what is called, ec- what we translate as eccentricity, this idea of key um, <clears throat> that I use as, as sort of what about literati culture were these each of these four poets, but especially those in the, in the late Edo period were really like after in terms of the attitude they wanted to display to the reader. And that is this sort of performance of, of eccentricity of the fact that they were sort of, you know, um, kind of outliers um, in, in the tradition. It was at this, on the one hand, a, a, a pose, right? A poetic pose. You know, we all have personas when we're sort of writing poetry. Um, but this was also a way for them to, express a self, um, a sense of self. And, and they did this through in, in poems that represented sense, feeling, um, thought, 
um, in in new and interesting ways. Um, so we have that, and in the late Edo period, I I focused on two um, poetics that were imported from um, late Imperial Chinese poetry, and this was late Imperial Chinese poetry was parallel, right, um, to early, early modern Japan, and so this is you know coming over from the the continental tradition. Um, through you know the imported um, art and you know manuals and and you know along with that poetry, so these two poetics that I focus on in these chapters on um, Buson and Psycho are the poetics of nat- natural sensibility and the poetics of blending of feeling and scene. And the, the former is about right this expression of personality um, by writing from personal experience of everyday life, and the latter. Um, is about sort of combining representations of the natural world with those of personal states of mind. And so both of these, you know, speak to what we could call like a heightened awareness of self and the desire to, you know, put that into words. Um, and the, all, all the poems that I examine in these two chapters by, I mean, about uh, Busan and Psycho show this, um, this, this, how these poetics, um, take form in for Busan and Haikai poetry and for uh, Psycho and in Kanshi. Now, you, you also asked about how this changes, right, um, in the Meiji period. And so, you know, these poetics continue um, just because it's sort of in the, the, the Bunjin repertoire. But, you know, with the modernization of Japan, the importation of Western thought, um, Western literature, Anglo-European poetry, right? So, you know, literary culture had to compete with these new things coming in. And so, you know, in the Meiji period, we do see an even more sort of a pronounced self, right? The lyric self that's coming in through, you know, the uh, the poetry that, that, that Shiki and Soseki are reading by, you know, Wordsworth and Keats and Shelley, but also, you know, Baudelaire and, you know, all these other, you know, wonderful uh, poets from um, the European tradition that were being translated, right, and sort of absorbed into the fabric of um, uh, what we what we now call modern Japanese literature, which was you know still being developed at, at this at the time at this time in the late nineteenth century. And so, with that, you have the whole idea of the romantic artist coming in, um, and you know everything that we might as you know when you think of romanticism, you know what these sort of Anglo-European poets were doing, you know, the Meiji poets tried to reproduce that. I mean, they were, they were incredibly um, informed by this tradition. And, and so you had basically, the, the, at least with Shiki and Soseki, what I was interested in is how this, the liter, these literati tropes um, or the, these poetic tropes from literati culture were sort of mixing and blending with this new newly imported romanticism. Um, and, you know, what was also going on, which makes the Meiji period incredibly fascinating, also very difficult to study, is, you know, it's not just poetry that's being written, right? I mean, you have the advent of the modern novel, right? You have um, this movement called Genbunichi, where um, the unification of speech and, and writing. And so this this is all, you know, um, um, trying to modernize the Japanese literary language creation of, you know, a new um, vernacular uh, for Japanese literature. And this is also something that um, I argue in the book that Shiki and Soseki were um, trying to infuse literary culture 
or trying to 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 sort of put these two things together that didn't seem to necessarily um, match, you know, because literary the literary tradition is, is is very old, you know, for centuries it's been practiced, and you have these genres like kanji and haiku that that go way back, and yet you have this sort of new sort of you know, fledgling um, language and, and 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 literary form that can you know that they wanted to experiment and see how they could include incorporate um, these the, these literary tropes. Um, and so in terms of, I would say formally, you know, it, it changed the lyricism changed a lot, but, you know, by virtue of being lyric, <laughs> um, the expression of self was, was something that continued throughout. It's just, you know, these, these modern writers found new ways to do it. <laughs> they found new forms to do it. And, um, yeah, that, that's, and that's sort of what interested me about Shiki and Soseki, sort of how they used these new, this new literary language to represent self, sense, and feeling um, in a way that was also acknowledging or making a claim to the literati tradition. In the beginning of the book, you mentioned that your book is about what poetry can do. Now, how do you explore this question through the forms of these poets' works? Um, yeah, thanks for that question. So uh, I opened the introduction by saying that um, this book is about what poetry can do because, well, one, I mean, that is what um, my book is about. And, and two, um, I put that there so I don't disappoint any readers who expect more than that. Um, the first paragraph of the introduction really sort of says it all. It's, it has a nice frame, I think. And it, um, I basically say, you know, my aim is to show how at a specific series of moments in, in Japanese literary history, poetry gave form to feeling while making a, a claim to an earlier tradition um, or an earlier literary tradition. Um, and so in, in four chapters, I show how Busan, Saiko, Shiki, and Soseki express their lyricism through a poetic persona um, representing an idiosyncratic and, and lyric self. I show how they did this um, by means of the poetic artifice afforded by um, the Japanese literati Bunjin tradition. And so you know, in, in saying this, I'm trying to tell the reader, well, this book is not a biography um, of Busan Saiko, Shiki, um, or Soseki. It's not a social history, um, nor does a literary history. I'd like to think of my book as, as literary criticism um, on poetry and poetic form, um, and in a sense, trying to engage with uh, scholars in Anglophone uh, literary studies and comparative literature. Um, and you know, you, you asked about the word form, and, and this is definitely a term that needs some definition. Um, you know, there's a lot of writing on form in, in Anglophone literary studies today, um, and I see myself in conversation um, with that body of, of scholarship and, and criticism. Um, so just to be, you know, quick about it, um, by form, I mean basically two things. You know, one is the sort of the common meaning as the words arranged to look like a poem or whatever literary work on the page, as well as, um, you know, how we identify um, a literary work, a poem, say, in the context of its literary tradition. Um, and in the sense, it's, it's I, I guess, interchangeable with the word genre. And so, you know, haiku, right, is a Japanese poetic form, and it's also a poetic genre um, uh, in Japanese, in the large umbrella of Japanese poetry. Um, but 
in the title of my book, you know, Form and Feeling in Japanese Literary Culture. So by the form there, I'm, I'm really sort of, and, and each chapter, uh, I think, demonstrates this, is it's more interested in this abstract meaning of form um, that refers to something like how a poem works as a poem. And so, you know, going back to the, the opening sentence, this is a book about what poetry can do. Um, form is what words do in the process of reading. And so by reading these, you know, the poetic forms of, of <clears throat> these four um, stellar writers, um, you know, I'm also talking about what it, what it, how that affects us as the reader. What does it mean to experience their poetic form? And so that's, that's sort of the, the more, I guess, abstract way of, of understanding form that I'm interested in pursuing in this, in this book. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Now, another very important aspect of poetry that you focus on in this book is um, irony. And in the book, you discuss how these poets um, express or represent their feelings through irony. Can you give us an example of how they achieved this? Yes. And so um, first, first, what is perhaps... Um, good to do is define what I mean by irony and irony and and you know in the introduction I, I um, cite some great work by um, DC Muke and um, uh, also Jonathan Lears an American philosopher and, and irony you know the way that I look at it in this book is is basically you know trying to say something without really saying it and there are a number of, of um, formal ways to look at how irony looks in each of these writers, poetic forms and I look at different oppositions um, that I read as, as the irony um, of, of their lyrical voice. And so um, why I'm looking at irony is, is a, is a good question. I mean, I think you know, people have said that irony is what, I mean, I think Kenneth Burke said this, right. That, you know, we're not, our, we're not mature in our language unless we're home and at home in irony. And so I, I really, I mean, I, I see that in, in these writers who have, um, in their more mature years, once they've sort of, you know, become, uh, you know, pro professional writers, that the irony sort of becomes the means by which they become the poets that they want to be. Um, and irony is, a, is sort of the way that they, because they're on the periphery of literary culture and the literary tradition, the only way for them to really embrace it um, I argue is, is for them to, to ironize it, to, to have this sort of 
ironic relationship with this, you know, old tradition. Um, I mean, so it's that way of trying to be a part of something when you know you're outside of that tradition, but you can all, the only way you can do that to be, to be a part of this is to do it ironically, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, was that the question? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was a pretty broad question to um, to begin with, but I think so far uh, when people, when, when scholars write about early modern poetry, um, this irony method is seldom mentioned, so I was very curious how you um, discussed it. And um, another interesting thing i think with your book is that uh you got into a lot of detail about uh this female poet emma Saiko, who was um so you mentioned earlier that um in scholarship about literati about bunjing um well back in the days they didn't refer to themselves as bunjing and what i found interesting was that in a lot of the previous scholarship Emma Saiko, this female poet, or any female poet really, was not really discussed or acknowledged as a part of this literary tradition. So can you talk about, uh, can you talk more about Emma Saiko and how she wrote poems that um, you said to have broken the poetic convention in her time? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, and Emma Saiko, you know, admittedly, she's sort of the outlier, Um in, in the book in the sense that she's the only woman. And um, I do, I talk about this a little bit in the introduction, but, you know, Busan, I mean, it, there's been there's scholarship that says that Busan um, informed Shiki and Soseki. And um, it's very obvious because Shiki, you know, wrote essays about Busan and was incredibly interested in Busan. And um, Busan was incredibly just influential for Shiki's own um, theorization of, his idea of chasse, you know, this, this sketching from life, um, which became a literary technique that he, you know, adopted in poetry and prose. Um, and Soseki also, you know, lots of Busan and, and Soseki as well that, that Japanese scholars have um, really, you know, um, it's well-trodden territory in, in other words, but with Emma Psycho, that's sort of been, I mean, she's definitely an outlier and, and, and I wasn't, I'm not trying by including her, I'm not trying to say that she had any direct influence on Shiki or Soseki, but um, there's something about the way that Emma Psycho, one, you know, being a woman, Bunjin, right, which is, as you point out, rare, um, although she wasn't the only one. Um, and there's a volume in Japanese that, that um, anthologizes her work along with uh, uh, three other um, women, Bunjin. In any case, she is mostly known as a painter. Um, and I think most of the work on her is by literary historians, I mean, it's, uh, art historians, um, and although some of her work has been made available, um, her poetry has been made available in English, um, few people have really looked at, like, what is it that she's doing with the literary tradition and her, her poetry, uh, you know, as poetry. And so what I found interesting about her is the way that she not only performs in this persona um, as a Keishu, this, this, you know, the talented woman of the inner chamber that, you know, any woman poet writing in Chinese poetic form must somehow, uh, at some point, right, perform in order for, to be a legitimate poet in that genre. 
Um, and so she did this, but she also did this in a very sort of self-conscious way. And, and the way that she, you know, writes poems, composes poems, when she's not in the chamber or she's kind of in the chamber, but then outside the chamber at the same time, for me, I found really interesting. And, and I found that to be the cornerstone of her, her, what I guess we would call her irony. Um, you know, Psycho, she, uh, of the three, uh, I mean, of the, the four writers I treat in the book, she's the only one who's, I guess, the, the, the most closely tied to the literary tradition, in the sense that she really only left works uh, in Chinese, you know, in, in Kanshi, and she, she composed, um, you know, in various genres of Kanshi, but she mostly only painted in the literati style, the Chinese literati style, you know, bamboo, um, flowers, um, and, and, and she did, she has works of calligraphy, you know, and, and so anything, I mean, excuse me, in any, any, anyway, Emma Psycho, you know, how she, I don't know if I would say broke the convention she she definitely was conventional but within convention this is why i find her so interesting you know she has these moments where she kind of pushes against the envelope or pushes the envelope if you know what i mean where she kind of tests she she she's aware of her persona her speaker is aware of, of the persona of being a, a talented woman within her chamber and you know also tries to walk out of that um, to, to transcend that topos of um, the inner chamber. And so, I mean, maybe the best way to, to, to talk about this is to look at a poem, if that's okay. Yeah, so there's a poem on page 89. It's called Bamboo. I'll read the poem. When I awake, there is no one around. The small cloister is pure. I grind the fragrant ink myself. The sound is soft and faint. Tall bamboo does not await the moon outside my chamber window. Pale shades fall aslant around my hand, taking form. And so I, I like this poem by, by Psycho because it's one in which, like, it's about, you know, the speaker is, is painting bamboo. It's very sensual, and, you know, it's, it, it takes, takes place in, the, in what we call the inner chamber, right, the, the um, generic topos for a woman in that persona. But what's really interesting about this is that it ends with what the object being painted is sort of coming alive and, you know, playing with the hand that is painting the object. And so this, this is a interesting moment for me that kind of resonates. It made me think of this poem by John Keats, um, um, where is it, um, this warm, uh, this living hand where, you know, the hand is now warm and capable and kind of reaches out to the reader. And I don't know, the fact that in this, in this poem by Psycho, right, the bamboo, um, the shades that, are, that, are, that she's painting on the canvas come alive and reach out to her hand, that was sort of this really uncanny moment that, um, so a, a way of sort of engaging with the literati object um, in a way that, at least to me, didn't seem very conventional. I mean, you know, you'd have... The, um, she's not just painting the object and, ta- and saying how beautiful it is. This, this object is coming alive, co- coming to life, and um, and I don't know when, it re- when when the object reaches out to the to the to the to the speaker um, or to the to the subject rather. That's an interesting moment, and I mean I don't I, I don't know if you want to read it as irony, but it's 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 definitely it's something that is not. It's not. It, it, she's saying something that is that 
she's saying something without saying it, I guess. Um, and so in that sense, I mean, in addition to um, this poem, you know, she, she wrote, she composed other poems in which she's not in the topo. She, she has a poem on the tale of Genji, um, her experience of reading the tale of Genji. She also has poems where she's traveling and trying to, you know, step outside the, the inner chamber. And yet she's also finds herself back in it. She also has poems. She has a poem that I look at where she even questions the whole idea of what does it mean to, you know, be a painter in, in as be, okay. What does it mean to be viewed as a painter of the inner, inner chamber when that's all that the viewer really sees in her? So she's very like her speaker is very aware of how she's perceived, and in that sense, it it sort of I don't know it turns the genre on its head. It, it makes it it's just, there's this sort of self awareness of the mode in which she's writing that I find really interesting. That um, I can only really describe as you know, a way of, of moving beyond convention by acknowledging that the convention exists and so trying to, to, to transcend it while also practicing it at the same time. <laughs> That's very interesting and very beautiful interpretation of her poems. Um, now, moving towards the modern period, and you mentioned earlier, um, Shiki, Masaoka Shiki and uh, Natsume Soseki, they were writing these poems when Western influences were coming to Japan after the major restoration. So do you think um, the poetic writing or their poetry theories or their um, understanding of poetry um, for Shiki and Soseki was impacted in any way by the uh, Western poetic traditions or even the Western interpretation of literature that came in um, to Japan after the major restoration or even in the Taisho period um, in the 19, after the 1910s? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. Well, I mean, Shiki didn't live, I mean, he, he didn't live past 1902, so he didn't get to see the Taisho period. But um, with Soseki, definitely. Um, yeah, so you're asking about, you know, is there poetry impacted by these, you know, dramatic social changes brought on by... Um, the Meiji Restoration, right, in 1867. And, and yes, I mean, you know, this was a, you know, how I teach it to my students, this was sort of a, an epistemic crisis um, for, for Japanese writers. And, you know, as they were tr- struggling to, you know, create a language that was modern and that, you know, could be considered, um, you know, that could compete with um, Western literary expression that was being imported at the same time. Um, you know, Shiki, much of Shiki's career was to modernize these traditional genres, um, not only, um, you know, haikai um, into haiku, um, but waka as well, um, traditional Japanese court, court poetry. Um, and Soseki, you know, he was mostly a novelist and he's remembered as a novelist. And so, you know, his poetic writing was something he did on the side, but also something that informed his modern prose. And so for, for both of these writers, Shiki and Soseki, um, I mean, how I read, how I read their prose, I only look at their prose works um, in these chapters and because, and I've chosen prose works in which um, poetry appears. And I read these forms as sort of allegories of, you know, what is happening, um, 
I, I don't know if I call it a, on a social level, but it's definitely what's happening sort of on a linguistic level with language reform, all these things that are happening with, you know, genres being outmoded or coming, um, being viewed as outmoded, for example, you know, so li- the literary tradition, um, and I'm talking about Kanshi, you know, um, traditional Chinese poetry as practiced in Japan, like this genre in, in particular was, was, you know, viewed as, as, you know, being sort of archaic and, and, you know, writers were trying to create new genres of poetry. You know, we have the new style poetry that emerges. Um, and meanwhile, Shiki is trying to modernize, you know, haiku and waka so that it, it's, you know, they, it can stand as, um, as their own sort of modern lyric genres. And it's, and interestingly enough, they do, um, survive, right? I mean, we have haiku and you know, waka even today, and they've even become, they've been imported into English poetry, into American poetry. Um, so he was successful in that regard. I mean, not only Shiki, but um, he was definitely a major proponent in that. But their, po- but their poetic writing, so I guess to answer your question, I mean, yes. Uh, it, and on the one hand, they were trying to hold on to the literary tradition um, by including these traditional genres, haiku and, and kanshi, at the same time, they're also innovating. Um, and I argue in the book that um, Shiki and Soseki advanced, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say created or, or you know, um, invented, but they, they sort of advanced the emergence of what I'd call modern prose poems. And these prose poems, you know, these, these are works of prose, and yet there's a poetic quality to them, um, in addition to the fact that they include many genres of poetry, um, chiefly uh, haiku and kanshi, but that the, the works as a whole have sort of this poetic um, quality to them that it's definitely, it, I mean, you could, yeah, it reflects the, the changes um, um, after the importation of, of Anglo-European literature. Um, so that's why form is really interesting for me um, and especially in Meiji and in, in the Meiji period, well, I guess in, in early Taisho as well, um, but just yeah, in the modern era to be simple, simple about it, because it's, it's at this moment where Japanese prose is really contending with, with epistemic change and trying to hold on to the past. And as it slips away, you know, making, making room for new ideas, for new forms. And then it's that sort of weird, in between transition transitional state that you know you have these works by shiki and soseki that you know today we look at them and they're i mean for lack of a better they're kind of just they're kind of weird you know they're 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 these i mean i mean in some in certain contexts i might describe them as, as like amoebas <laughs> you know they, they're just they're, they're there's an interesting formless quality to them um, and that's why I've, I've been attracted to those poetic works in particular, because it's sort of, they, I read them as, yeah, as, as allegorizing this crisis in literary form um, during the late 19th century up to the turn of the 20th century. Fascinating. 
And now to go back to your first question um, about literati, and um, after seeing these poets' methods, how they write about their feelings, and especially the transformation from the mid Tuga to the um, Taisho period, do you think um, their writing methods, their way of treating poetry, in any way reflect or represent um, transformations in the literati culture of Japan? And I guess um, if I may add this question that I have been very personally interested in, do you think it reflects any change in what we may be able to perceive as literati? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this also goes back to the question of well, what, is, what does literati mean? And, you know, arguably it is a very sort of vague term. And, and I think it's even still used today to talk about just any sort of you know, savant of the arts and someone who practiced in, in multiple forms, but it's also an aesthetic pose, an attitude um, that is trying to sort of maybe transcend the form in which um, the artist is practicing. Um, so there's definitely an idealism there and a romanticism there. Um, but the, to the question of, of this literati culture transform um, and by the Meiji period, and, and you know, it does. And what does it? How, how does that? What does that look like? What is the feeling of that? And I mean, I read the um, poetic feelings of anxiety and um, sort of the mournful feelings and and, and grief and all that. Um, I guess you know, sadness. To just to be very simple about it, um, as a response to sort of the loss of this. Um, or, the, or the decline of this culture, rather. I mean, with Soseke, I do make the bold claim that, I mean, at least for him, the, the, the end of or the death of the literary tradition was imminent, that had already happened by the time he was writing. And so, you know, there's a, a mournful feeling that pervades Soseke's works, and this is not just his poetry, but just, you know, his novels as well. And I read that as a response. I mean, it's, I think it's a response to a lot of things, but one of uh, one thing it's responding to is the decline of the literary tradition that he and Shiki held dear. I mean, you know, these are writers who were born right at the start of the Meiji period. They were sort of the last to receive that rich education in, you know, the Chinese classics, in late Edo, um, prose and poetry. I mean, they love that stuff. And then here you have... You know, in the, in the late 19th century, this call to to modernize, to you know, write in uh, you know a vernacular language, um, to no, no longer practice these traditional forms, traditional genres of poetry, and so you know, <laughs> any human being, you know, could only respond with you know these feelings of of anxiety and and um, and grief, and so um, I would say that the literary tradition had to deal with more of that. Um, these representations of of grief, um, which we can see in the works of uh, Shiki, but especially Soseki. What Shiki does is, you know, he uses his own body <laughs> as sort of a metaphor for the decline of the tradition, because you know his deathbed narratives, in particular, he he represents himself, and he, you know, he, we all know that Shigi suffered from tuberculosis, but he creates this poetic persona that is also ill and dying, but he's kind of like a prima donna, 
where he's you know constantly talking about how he's hurting and you know how 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 much pain he's suffering and you know I mean he's pretty I mean he's a, he's quite a performer I mean you know while he's crying I'm, I'm I think the reader or maybe I'm just talking about myself and my sixth sense of humor but I find myself kind of kind of like smiling and laughing uh, at the same time. Um, and I think this is deliberate on his part. And, and, but so it's, it's sort of this, you know, this maybe wry humor of his or his irony, right. Of, of seeing the, the, the literary tradition in dis, in a state of dissolution and he uses literary form, um, um, to represent that. And so Seki, you know, being sort of a much darker, uh, thinker on this subject, I mean, his stuff is the, the, the two works that I look at, um, one is, you know, this Kusamakura, his lyrical novel, where um, he has this romantic artist that you know is trying to look for, trying to to find insp- inspiration for his painting. You know, at the end, he does you know find inspiration for his painting, but the whole work is just you know there's this tone of melancholy that that you just can't really get rid of, even though if, even though the, the artist finds inspiration, he has this epiphany at the end, but it, it's so pat, like he just. I find it unconvincing, I guess I could say, and that's sort of the the um, the irony uh, that comes with that work. And then the the other work that I look at in the Soseki chapters, um, his uh, his memoir, um, which I also read as a prose poem, and you know he represents himself. You know he he as everyone knows, Soseki had this you know near death experience and. He represents that um, in literary form, and the whole thing is, is is ironic and it's mournful and full of, you know, poems about his illness, but also about almost dying and, and decay, and and so it's and I, I I'm reading all this, you know, what I've said about Shiki and, and what I'm saying about Soseki as a response to the decline of the tradition. So, you know, what does that leave the future of the literary tradition? Well. You know, I end the book with this poem by Soseki. It's his final, it's his last poem, like ever. <laughs> um, and it's a kanshi. And in that kanshi, he, or how I read the ending, he ends with this image of white clouds. And it's, it's uh, the speaker is this disembodied um, spirit or, 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 or lyric voice that is um, singing the song singing a song to the white clouds and so you kind of you have to read that or the way that i read it is it's sort of a comment on well this is what literary culture needs to be now that it, it no longer has a form right to hold it it has to sort of float in the ether of you know japanese cultural memory um as something that people can only maybe um hear or think about um as there's no real audience for no material audience that can really um, receive it. I mean, it's kind of bleak, um, but I mean, you know, the literary tradition, right. It, it historically does peter out. It ends, um, in the early 20th century. And I think Sosaki was, you know, one of the first to really lament that, um, in a meaningful way. I mean, you do have, you know, people like Nagai Kafu and sort of other practitioners who, you know, kind of still, um, practice in these forms and are still very aware of the tradition, but that doesn't mean that the tradition didn't decline or didn't die off first, right? So this, it becomes sort of this nostalgic, this sort of antiquarian practice. Um, and I think that that was already the case, you know, by the late 19th century, it's just, you know, 
you can you can hold on to things for so long um and people do um but um i think that is that is what happens to literary culture becomes this this relic and and this relic that people um um want to practice as a means of, of nostalgia that's um, absolutely fascinating. And I also wonder when we'll see um, such kind of irony and darkness in your poetry in the future, <laughs> perhaps. Let's hope not. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Anyhow, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for your wonderful um, interpretation of these poems and these poetry methods. Sure. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. And for our listeners who want to learn more about Japan's poetry tradition and the literary culture, make sure to check out this new book, Form and Feeling in Japanese Literary Culture by Dr. Matthew Mawani. This is Jenny Lee from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, l o Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.